welcome to another episode of the World War II Nation podcast. The next two instalments are part of our World War II restoration series, as we'll be talking with Battlefield Guide historian and archaeologist Stephen Fisher about all things landing craft related during the Second World War. And in particular, we'll be focusing on the ongoing project to restore D-Day veteran landing craft tank 7074. So sit back, relax, and make sure you have your sea legs at the ready, because here we go. The development of the landing craft in the many shapes and forms it would eventually take on, such as the landing craft tank, uh, was vital to the success of D-Day, not to mention this and many other amphibious operations that the Allies took on during the Second World War. How many of these pivotal vessels were built during the conflict? And can you talk us through the development and birth of the landing craft and specifically the LCT in general? Yeah, it basically came about not long after... Dunkirk and the evacuation of Allied forces from mainland Europe, but it was very quickly realised that at some stage we would need to return to mainland Europe in force. At the time, Britain really only had two types of landing craft, the landing craft assault and the landing craft mechanised, which are both minor landing craft and only carry a platoon of troops or a, a single vehicle. Um, and so very quickly a specification was put out for a, a larger vessel capable of carrying several tanks and landing them directly onto a beach. Uh, and so that became the, the landing craft tank Mark One. But that was very much a, a sort of developmental model, if you like. Not a huge number were built. And so it moved on to the landing craft tank Mark Two very quickly, which was longer, carrying more vessels. And then the landing craft tank Mark Three was the next obvious evolution of that, which was longer and wider and could carry up to 10 tanks in um, rows of uh, five in pairs. But even that was very quickly built upon as well, and then you get the Landingcraft tank Mark IV, which was the most numerous one produced by uh, the United Kingdom throughout the Second World War. Almost 900 of those were built, compared to about 300 of the Landingcraft tank Mark III. Um, later... Development of the Landingcraft tank actually came from the United States. The Landingcraft tank Mark V was a development of a British design because the US didn't have any designs of their own, so they built a British spec one, the Mark V, but then they developed their own types of landing craft as well. And all told, Britain built uh, it was um, 1,500 landing craft tank, I think, off the top of my head, um, and the US produced... Uh, nearly 2,000 as well. So they really were uh, almost prevalent. You know, they, they were a very necessary type of craft and they were produced in huge, huge numbers. Um, and by the time the war ended, yeah, there were nearly approaching 3,500 of them available to the Allies. But today there's only three of them left that we know of. They were a very uh, functional vessel. You know, they, they had a sole purpose, um, and some of them, including landing craft tank 7074, they were built pretty much purely for D-Day. That was their, their main function. They were built in a rush in the last minute just to make sure there were enough vessels to get troops and vehicles across to the Normandy beaches. Um, but even so, that you know, they were metal vessels. They were quite hardy, some of them did incredible things during the war, but um, as soon as the war had ended, they were pretty much unnecessary. In fact, the only landing crafts that really survived for a couple of years after the war were the, 
the very late British model, the Leningraft Tank Mark Eight, and only a couple of dozen of those were produced, but they survived in the British fleet uh, right through to the 50s, 60s, um, and Britain sold and scrapped all of its uh, earlier models, all of the Mark 1s, 2s, 3s and 4s, because they were just no longer needed. Uh, and so, yeah, the fact there's only three left worldwide is a tiny percentage, but not a huge surprise. And obviously we'll go on to LCT 7074 in a minute, but where are the other two based then? There's two others that we know of. There is a Mark II landing craft that was converted to a landing craft rocket, and that is in Haifa in Israel. And there is a Mark V landing craft that operates on the Great Lakes in the United States. You mentioned, obviously, that was going to be one of my questions, how many vehicles could the LCT be capable of transporting? Obviously, 10 tanks, but... Was the role varied? Obviously, the, as the name was suggests, LCT, obviously landing craft tank, you, you'd think it was primarily focused on armoured um, vehicles. Did it? Did its load tend to vary? Oh, yes. Um, all sorts of vehicles could be carried. And in fact, some of the interesting documents we found during the research for this project is uh, loading tables for different types of vehicles and how best to distribute those vehicles across the tank deck. Uh, to balance the load, and it includes basically every type of vehicle. Um, and not just that, they were used uh, for transporting machinery. Um, there's a quite famous picture of a, a train being unloaded from a landing craft tank. And even more bizarrely, an aircraft fuselage being loaded back into a landing craft tank to be taken from Normandy back to the United Kingdom. This was a, a crashed aircraft. Um, during Operation Overlord, after the initial D-Day landings, landing craft tank provided a, a ferry service between bigger ships offshore and the beaches themselves. And there are many pictures of landing craft tank literally packed full of infantry. Um, not crossing from the United Kingdom, that would be pretty dangerous for infantry, but just short hops of 10 miles or so from offshore ships. Uh, as a basically a big floating platform to be able to carry companies' worth of men, so they they could carry just about anything. And in fact, one of Landingcraft Tank Seven Hundred Seven Four's very last loads was to take some some very large industrial cranes, which were used for hoisting smaller landing craft uh, out of the water and onto the back of flatbed flatbed trucks. Um, and it was a landing craft tank that had to take these over because the cranes were so big that they wouldn't fit in the hold of the normal vessel. And because the landing craft tank's tank deck is open, there's enough space for an incredibly large crane. So, yeah, they, they could carry just about anything that you could fit on them. It's quite incredible. So we're talking, what, you say a company size of men, what, about 120 plus? Yeah, I mean, actually thinking about it, you could probably fit more on. Um, it's quite a long vessel, landing craft tank Mark III, it's the same length as HMS Victory in Portsmouth Historic Dockyard, so yeah, I'm sure you could fit more than 100 men on it, thinking about it, um, probably more like 300. Sorry, they were a really useful ferry service because you could get a huge number of men into them um, and just yeah, move them from an offshore uh, troop ship straight onto the beach without having to have lots of landing craft assault making short shuttle runs. Going back to the construction of the LCT, 
<clears throat> you said obviously initially it was kind of a, primarily a, a British concept, the LCT. What sort of locations were these these built in the dockyards around the UK, and then obviously in America? Where were we looking at them? The origins. So the early ones were built by shipyards. Um, and in fact, Hawthorne Leslie, who built 7074, built one of the very first landing craft tank Mark 1s. Later ones were built in a, um, uh, I can't think of the word to describe it, sorry. Uh, they were built as sections that were then assembled so they could be built by much smaller operations. But at their heart, they are ships, they're, they're vessels. The same rules about shipbuilding apply to them. They need to be uh, buoyant, they need to be stable. They're obviously built along very different lines to traditional ships because they're flat-bottomed. But in all essence, they, they are a, a shipbuilder's work um, and they are vessels in their own right. So it does need skilled assembly to complete these these vessels, because at the end of the day, they have to go to sea, and they have to go to sea in all sorts of different weathers. So, yeah, they, they need it's a skilled process assembling them. What sort of timescale we're we talking to build some of this? Because I know I read, I remember reading ages ago, in I think one of James Holland's books that it was saying sort of the American um, industrial might they got it down to sort of like ten days to sort of build landing crafts at one stage. It might even be Liberty ships I'm thinking of here specifically. I can imagine that in the US, yes, with their production line uh, system in factories, they could certainly knock out landing craft very quick. I mean, for 10 days, um, that might be a Higgins boat rather than a landing craft tank. Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen that quote. But certainly, even for a large landing craft tank, um, 7074, for instance, was built in four months uh, or less. It might have been three months because work only started on her at the very beginning of 1994 and she was launched in early april so by then they could produce them very very quickly so you've already touched on Stephen lct 7074 is one of the last landing craft tanks left from the second war in the uk and in the world um which is quite incredible so how did this fantastic heritage project first come about and how did you become personally involved with this exciting restoration well, 7074 is uh, a bit of a unique survivor because, as I said, so many of the landing craft were scrapped at the end of the war or sold off to other countries, and most of them, as the saying goes, were turned into razor blades. 7074 survived by virtue of the fact that she was converted um, towards the very end of the war into a landing craft repair facility. Uh, so her tank deck was covered over with buildings and workshops, and the idea was that she would sail to the Far East to provide a floating workshop capability for repairing other landing craft. Um, but of course, the war in the Far East ended, and she was left in Liverpool, where the work was being carried out. Um, a couple of years after the war, a local club, the Liverpool or Merseyside Mariners Club, was looking for a venue to meet and the idea struck them that perhaps a vessel would be a, a good facility and they were able to procure 7074 and convert it into a club ship after that it um, became a floating nightclub uh, and then later on into the 1990s she was acquired by the warship preservation trust but unfortunately before they could complete the restoration they went into liquidation 
and the vessel was, to all intents and purposes, abandoned with no owner. And after a couple of years in Merseyside, she sank at her moorings and was never fully immersed at high tide, but was pretty much semi-underwater. And in 2014, the National Museum of the Royal Navy, having acquired funding to recover her, were able to raise her and bring her down to Portsmouth. And at that point, I was doing some work in the historic dockyard. And just as a volunteer, I pulled out a little bit of information about her service history from the National Archives and the D-Day orders that clarified what she had been doing. And since then, I've been volunteering for a while. And uh, in the last half a year, I've been recruited as the archaeologist to record the changes that will be made to the vessel during her restoration and to carry out deeper research into her history and her her wartime story, particularly D-Day, but also the operations that she carried out right up until the end of the war. Well, we'll go on to that in a second, but can you talk us through each of the various stages of the restoration so far and I suppose what's coming up and when you're hoping to have have a return to her former glory? So because she's been in the water for so long, uh, a, a large amount of rust has built up on the hull and for a very long time she was just a very orange and brown um, coated vessel. Uh, the first important stage of the restoration was to remove most of that, and that's been done with ultra-high pressure water jetting, or UHP water jetting, and that has been used to, to clear off all of this crud that has acquired over the entirety of the metal hull, like a, a sort of crust, and that has been remarkably successful. It has cleaned off the hull and the, the metal work and the superstructure incredibly to the the extent that uh, whole new levels of detail have been revealed, including writing on some of the components around the side of the tank deck and even exposing all of the individual rivets um, in her hull construction. With that done, there will later be some grip blasting on some of the more stubborn areas and then the, the painting and treatment of the metalwork begins to seal it before... Uh, oxidization starts to cause her to rust again. So that is essentially the treatment, if you like, for the hull. But of course, the ultimate aim is to restore her to her appearance on D-Day for Operation Neptune. And that involves uh, modifications because throughout her life, she's been modified heavily, including, as I said, a nightclub, um, and reverting some of those changes. Some of this will require the reintroduction of of new fabric, replica, weapons, and that kind of thing. Um, other details we need to investigate more thoroughly, like the, the actual colours that we use to paint her. And so paint samples can be taken so that she can be fully painted up as she would have appeared on, on D-Day itself. Uh, and, yeah, basically my role is to look at the archaeology of the vessel, look at... Um, the evidence that's given from modifications to the hull where things have been welded up or cut through so that I can advise the team on how best to restore the vessel to exactly what she looked like. Because, of course, although these landing craft were built to a fairly standard design, all of the dockyards would have done things ever so slightly differently. And we already see from photographs there is minor variation in the 
the design of all of these landing craft, even ones that were built in the same dockyards. So really it's a case of trying to be as authentic to the original history and design of the ship as possible. Uh, and yeah, that's where my work comes in really, recording what changes have been made and interpreting them so we understand exactly what's happened to her in the past. Where are you hoping to have her displayed in the end when she's finished? When she is finished, she will be displayed outside the D-Day Story, formerly the D-Day Museum, on South Sea Common in Portsmouth. And she will be literally just outside the museum, um, in front of the, the brick wall that makes up the old Victorian gun battery of uh, South Sea Battery which surrounded South Sea Castle in the Victorian period. So she's going to be visible from all around South Sea Common from you know a good mile in every direction as you look down to the D-Day story in South Sea Castle. So she's going to become a real landmark. Um, she'll be the largest thing down there on the waterfront. And I think she's going to look really spectacular. So that's why it's, it's important to get this restoration right and the colours right and that kind of thing because she's going to be on prime display for anyone who ever goes down to that part of Portsmouth. You talked, or you touched on the, the size of this vessel. I mean, it, it's colossal. I've seen a picture of um, it compared to a double-decker bus. Where, where do you store something like this? It's over 200 th- feet long, isn't it? Uh, yes, she's quite long. At the moment, she is in Portsmouth Naval Base in the BAE Systems main ship hall, uh, and that's where the work is being carried out on her. Uh, this is very good for us because it's right on the dockyard area so when it comes to refloating her to transport her around to south sea we can bring a barge right up to where she is and move her onto it uh it provides shelter obviously because it's a covered ship all um so it gives us a, a secure and weather type working environment to carry out the restoration that said she's currently enclosed in a very large of marquee, if you like, um, for the blasting processes and to protect her and also to prevent uh, environmental damage from all of that blasting. So, yeah, so we're not polluting the immediate vicinity. So, yeah, at the moment, she's in a very, very, very big white tent inside the ship <laughs> hall. You mentioned obviously she's going to be on display outside the museum, which is going to be absolutely fantastic to see. In terms of keeping her weatherproofed, obviously being out in the open. How have, have you and the team sort of planned for that? So the National Museum of the Royal Navy are working with Portsmouth City Council and their project managers, Artelia UK, have recruited numerous teams to, to ensure the best way of preserving the vessel in the long term and conservationists and metallurgists are all involved. Uh, there is a... Um, purpose-built canopy that is going to be built over the vessel, uh, which will shelter her from the worst of the weather. And the rest of the protection really comes down to getting the restoration right. So sealing the the hull with the paint job, which won't be the traditional slap and dash military paint <laughs> in the Second World War when they would just paint it as quickly as possible. This will be... Um, uh, uh, restorative paints that will help protect the hull and seal it uh, almost like a varnish as well um, she is going to be outdoors she is going to be exposed to the elements but it would be very difficult to purpose build a structure for this landing craft uh, without 
closing her off and making her less impressive. Um, she's not going to be in the water, so that's very good for her because that would obviously reduce her lifespan significantly. And she will be monitored regularly. Uh, one of the things that the restoration involves is making sure that there are no surfaces that are covered up or or hidden where rust could develop without our knowing about it, so that the conservationists from National Museum of the Royal Navy will always be able to access all parts of the hull, monitor her condition, and then they can act accordingly in the long term. Turning to LCT 7074's service history during the Second War, where was she built and how long did it take to construct her? She was built by the company Hawthorne Leslie, who were based in Hebburn on the Tyne near Newcastle. Uh, she was part of a special order that was uh, placed at the end of 1943 when the Allies realised that they didn't have sufficient landing craft uh, for D-Day. So another, nearly 200 more were ordered, but not all of them were actually built. And she was one of six that were built in the first few months of 1944 by Hawthorne Leslie. She was launched at the start of April and was then held in the reserve pool whilst she worked up, essentially, with a brand new crew. They trained and uh, made a, a working ship before they sailed down the coast to East Anglia, where they joined the 17th landing craft tank flotilla in preparation for D-Day. And then very quickly, they barely had any time to train. They went down to Felixstowe. And by the start of June 1944, that's where they were based. Literally 2nd of June, I think, they collected their their cargo, uh, which was a number of tanks from the 7th Armoured Division. And then on the 5th of June, they sailed for Normandy. So literally two months after launch, she was on her way to to Normandy for Operation Neptune. So this was a landing craft that was built in a hurry and, yeah, very nearly could not have been involved in D-Day. It wouldn't have taken much to, to slow down a build or for an error or a, a mechanical problem to cause her to not be able to take part. After D-Day, she then made trips back and forth across the English Channel and then in October 1944, she moved round to Dover after the channel guns at Calais had been captured, uh, it was possible for a much shorter route for resupplying the army as they advanced north into Belgium and Holland. And then she continued to escort, uh, so, sorry, to carry vehicles and men and machinery across to Antwerp or the northern French ports until April 1945 when she was transferred around to Liverpool in this expectation that she would be converted into a landing craft repair facility. Uh, the technical name would have been a naval service craft large. And she was converted in um, in May 1945 until about uh, taken a few months um, to, to make the transformation. But of course, just about the time they finished converting her, the war in the Far East ended. Uh, so she never saw service after that. And then went into civilian service as a, a, a club ship and then a nightclub talked about the quick training uh, and the build-up to D-Day for its new crew. What sort of training did it consist of? Did they take part in, for example, exercise Fabius, the build-up, obviously, for D-Day, the trial runs? No, she wasn't involved in Fabius because 
we know from the Admiralty Movement Orders that between her launch in April and D-Day, she never went further south than Felixstowe. Um, her first stop on leaving the Tyne was to go down to East Anglia and HMS, oh, I forget the name, the uh, landing craft training facility based at Great Yarmouth. Um, and then she was moved around to Felixstowe, where she would have been under the operational command of HMS Wolverstone, which was another landing craft and amphibious facility, and that's where she loaded up her tanks. So her training would have been very brief, because she wasn't at Great Yarmouth for long, literally only a couple of weeks before she sailed uh, down to, to Felixstowe. So any training they did would have been very quick, very basic, and wasn't part of the, the larger um, practice runs before D-Day itself. Of course, Force L wasn't one of the immediate assault waves. The Operation Fabius was for landing craft, uh, sorry, for the fleets taking part in Force G, Force J, and Force S, who were going to Gold, Juno, and Sword Beaches, respectively. Force L, the immediate follow-up wave, which 7074 was part of, would be landing on the D-Day beaches in the afternoon. Um, so they weren't involved in those early training operations. And yeah, their training appears to have been much shorter. Um, they didn't meet the units they would be working with, the 7th Armoured Division, beforehand. Uh, unlike Force S, who had a very long training association with the 3rd Infantry Division uh, before they went to Sword Beach. So yeah really very short notice operation uh building these particular landing craft and getting them ready for d-day what were conditions like for those men that were serving on board that they were actually manning the vessel um how many men were involved in that and i guess what the conditions like on board a shallow bottom vessel especially when the weather was uneasy during that period the build up to d-day um you give us a sort of feel of what it was like for them Landing craft aren't the most glamorous or um, comfortable vessels in the Royal Navy's fleet in the Second World War. As you said, they're flat-bottomed, um, the idea being that they can then get very far inshore, right up onto beaches. But that means that they're incredibly unstable and they bob around on the water with every single wave. And that makes them very uncomfortable to live in because they roll and pitch incredibly easily. Uh, so they're, they're not the, the most comfortable vessel to put to sea in. Now, because a, a landing craft is so functional, so utilitarian, um, basically one big tank deck with some engines behind it to push it along, there's not a huge amount of crew space either. And the mess deck for the crew, and there were 10 uh, enlisted men on board, the mess deck is immediately behind the engine room at the very stern of the vessel and it's in the middle of the mess deck is the steering apparatus so they have to live amongst the machinery of this vessel in a very small enclosed space with only one entrance which is the hatch immediately above that goes into the wheelhouse uh, so not the most comfortable living space very small very noisy very damp from all accounts that we've read, because there was very little ventilation at this part of the vessel. There were only two portholes, one on each side of the deck, and um, that led to an incredible build-up in moisture. 
and uh, there are accounts of sailors putting waterproofs over their blankets just to keep them dry when they were sleeping in their hammocks at night. For the two officers on board, um, conditions were slightly nicer. They had a wardroom in the wheelhouse, so up on deck with more portholes, more ventilation. Um, but even so, nothing like the wardroom you would find on a, a destroyer or even a corvette. These were tiny little spaces and um, really enough space for a desk and a bed uh, and a few other useful bits of furniture, um, uh, bookshelf, that kind of thing. Charts were stored in cases immediately on the deckhead above their sleeping area. Um, there wasn't a huge amount of space in them. They would have filled up very quickly. Uh, so, yeah, not the most comfortable of spaces. There was one washroom in the wheelhouse, which was primarily for the officers. The crew's wash space was at the very bow of the vessel. So in order to get there, they had to come up through the mess deck hatch and then walk down the length of the tank deck uh, to get to the very front of the vessel where they'll find the heads and some basins. There is some evidence, and we see it on 7074, that these later landing craft might have had the facilities for the, sorry, for the washroom in the wheelhouse to actually be used by all men, the officers and the enlisted men. Um, now, we can't say that that's definitely what happened, but the doorway to this particular space is accessible from the rear deck of the vessel, which suggests that it was not purely for the use of officers. Even so, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny washroom uh, with limited water. Um, so again, very, very basic, primitive facilities. So for the men on board, it wasn't an easy life. The galley was tiny, so there were, there were no rich gourmet meals coming out of it. Um, and with such a small crew, 12 men in total, everyone had to be capable of fulfilling all sorts of tasks. And again, this is something that we see in accounts from crew of landing craft, that they, they quickly had to become jack of all trades and be able to pitch in and help with just about anything. So unlike the bigger ships, which tended to have a bit more uh, public adulation and glamour, um, these were really, really working ships. And yeah, life on them would have been very hard. Hopefully that's whet your appetite for part two, where we'll be delving even deeper into the fascinating service history of LCT 7074, including a remarkable connection of the team of Unearthed between this LCT and Michael Vittman and the fighting at Villas Bocage. Anyhow, that's all for now from myself and the team here at Walwish Nation. Thanks for listening and make sure to check back here next week for part two of talking resurrecting D-Day veteran LCT 7074 with Stephen Fisher. 